Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, Clinical Professor of Medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast, episode 19, Medicare for All. Healthcare in the United States, you get what you pay for. Do we really? This top 6% of words commonly used seems so contradictory when we discuss the cost of healthcare in the United States. In 2018 alone, the United States spent 16.9% of GDP on healthcare, nearly twice as much as the average OECD countries like Switzerland, which is about 12.2%, New Zealand and Australia at 9.3%. Per capita health spending in the United States, about 4,092 per capita, which is more than twice as much as in Australia France, Canada, UK, and New Zealand. In the United States, per capita spending from private sources is about $4,000. It's covered by usually by employers, private insurance premiums, which is five times higher than a country like Canada. In Sweden and Norway, private spending is less than $100 per capita. So ours is $4,000. So the average U.S. residents paid about $1,100 out-of-pocket for healthcare, which includes the copay for visits, the prescription drugs, and deductibles. Despite the highest spending on healthcare, Americans experience worse health outcomes than these international peers. The United States has the lowest life expectancy compared to other developed countries the highest chronic disease burden and obesity burden, the highest hospitalizations from preventable causes and highest rates of avoidable deaths. Given these statistics and having been experiencing health inequity during this pandemic, I am eager to learn about what is being proposed on state levels and national levels to help even the playing field in healthcare. I am pleased to welcome two guests, a mother and daughter team, to help us understand what is cooking out there on state and federal levels. This will help us understand and start an advocacy for our own health. So we have Miriam Ahmad, is an amazing high school junior in San Jose, who at such an early age has declared her passion in public health. She approached me when she was freshman in high school to be part of ABCs for Global Health as an intern. ABCs for Global Health is a nonprofit organization with work mainly in the Philippines for now to help the underserved gain access to healthcare. So currently, Miriam chairs the South Bay chapter for students for a national health program. She is also the youth organizer for the Santa Clara County Single-Payer Healthcare Coalition. 
Dr. Yusra Hussein, the mother who is probably the best role model, that's why Miriam is following her footsteps. Dr. Hussein is an adjunct clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine and the chair for physicians for a national health care program in the South Bay chapter. She is a practicing internist and geriatrician in Palo Alto, California. She's an esteemed and dedicated, passionate colleague of mine. Welcome, Yusra and Miriam, to Medicine for Good podcast. So please help us understand, why is our healthcare system deemed fractured? Thank you so much, Dr. Gabriela, for having us. We're really both honored to be here. Um, I want to say that you have been an inspiration to Miriam as well. Since she met you back when she was a freshman, one of your ideas of starting a homeless clinic, a mobile clinic actually at that time, really inspired her and instigated her work and research in terms of the inequality in healthcare and the inequity of uh, our healthcare system. Since then, we both joined Bernie Sanders' campaign at that time in 2019 in his plight for universal healthcare coverage and Medicare for all. And subsequent to that, we both got interested in the work at the state and the national level, uh, basically in support of universal healthcare coverage. From here, I will have Miriam talk a little bit about the inequality or the inefficiencies in our healthcare system and why our healthcare system today is in the state that it is, unfortunately. Go ahead, Miriam. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Gabiola, so much for having us. Essentially, what we have in America is not a healthcare system, it's a patchwork of private insurance coverage and public different options and so many people who are uninsured or underinsured, which basically means that nominally they do have insurance, but they are unable due to the cost to go to the doctor or to get other essential medication. So we have a country, essentially, we are not getting the health care that the richest country on earth, the United States, should be able to afford. And what that means is that we are falling behind in terms of every marker of health. And it's hurting us not only as people, but as an economy. Also, to the fact that our healthcare system is heavily structured around employment, the problem is what we have here in the United States is an employer-based healthcare system, which is really essentially only allows people who are gainfully employed to access healthcare, and those who have disabilities may be able to access healthcare under some government-sponsored programs. But the reality is a lot of uninsured individuals, Americans and residents, simply just don't have access to a healthcare or a decent healthcare due to lack of employment. And we have really felt that more so than ever now during the pandemic, where we have more than 82 million Americans unemployed and about 4 million Californians unemployed due to the loss of jobs and businesses throughout the pandemic and so on. So this is a healthcare system that is unfortunately heavily baked structured around for-profit, that is employer-based. The idea is to provide services only for people who access the top tier of healthcare insurance. And even then, most of these individuals, when you speak with them, and I have many colleagues and patients who suffer from this, will tell you that basically even with the best Cadillac healthcare insurance, there are so many services that are not covered or that the doctors will have to fight for through either prior authorizations and being on the phone for many hours trying to get services covered for their patients. On top of that is the current healthcare system also has so many redundancies in its processes. 
you have, for example, if you take any case, you know, you want a simple procedure or imaging, you have multiple layers of not just prior authorization, but individuals that are working essentially to try and get that service covered. In any other healthcare system in the world, you don't have such complexities in coverage. It's simply you submit the request for the study and then either the insurance will approve or deny based on the necessity of the study. And right now you have a healthcare system that is set up, as mom was saying, just to echo, it's set up for profit. We have insurance companies that will literally profit when they deny coverage of services. That is how they make their money. During the pandemic, people in general are less willing to go and get doctor's appointments and other services just because of the pandemic. And then you have insurance companies making record profits this year. And you'd think that because we're in a pandemic, maybe they're hurting a bit more. They are doing so well. They profit when people don't get services because that means they don't have to cover them. Ultimately, any system that profits when people are not accessing healthcare is a broken system. But unfortunately, that is the one that we have right now. That's interesting. I mean, even if we opened all these telemedicine visits, there's still a lot of people who are not following up because they're afraid to go to a doctor's clinic. And I get you, Yusra. I think one of the reasons why physicians have burnout is because of this operational inefficiencies in our clinic, that you have to do this peer-to-peer pre-authorization for MRI, for things, the services that are needed for our patients and even like medications that are badly needed. So you have to at times call for pre-authorizations and on top of what we already do day to day. Like what you mentioned, a lot of these are employer-based coverage, right? So if you have an employer who or if you lose your job, you won't have any insurance and you have to go through it over again. And how about employers who don't want to cover the health care of their workers? They actually contract them. So they would give them a contract or three to six months and then they let them go and then rehire them again. That's to cut costs on a health care coverage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is happening all throughout the country. Unfortunately, there is, I would say, you know, most businesses have adopted this model where they contract outside workers and essentially don't provide them with any benefits or health coverage. And for most parts, these people are on their own fetching for health care. So if you are in a state like California, where they do provide or contract with the Affordable Care Act, some of these individuals will still be able to access some form of health care. But there are many other states, and specifically, I would say the Republican states that do not provide anything under the Affordable Care Act. These individuals are completely on their own. They have no other means of coverage. And even with the Affordable Care Act, as we were talking earlier, the reality is we are talking about a multi-tier healthcare system, you know, in a system where you're paying so much upfront in, in costs and in premiums, and you're getting very little in return. Because again, even with the Affordable Care Act, Unfortunately, it is still the for-profit healthcare insurance companies that are operating here and deliver and providing the insurance coverage. Most of these companies will cut costs, will pay doctors absolutely ridiculous amounts of money in terms of dollar value. 
So a lot of doctors don't even want to contract with them because of the low payments. But patients themselves are left to fend for themselves to try and find healthcare coverage somewhere else. Whereas if you take a system such as Medicare, Medicare for most parts negotiate with doctor bodies and hospitals and other healthcare services that provide healthcare or other services that provide healthcare and at a reasonable price agree to cover their individual patients. So this is the contrast that we're seeing here between the current existing state power healthcare system between what Medicare provides and what other systems, whether it's the Affordable Care Act or private insurance provides. Yeah, and Medicare actually has been shown to be better at negotiating drug prices than private insurance companies. You'd expect the opposite, but in fact, Medicare is the best at that. And there are just so many things that I've heard mom attest to where she doesn't have to go through pre-authorization and all that nonsense in order to get her patients health care where she doesn't have to do that under Medicare. And it's such a easy system or a lot easier, at least, than the for-profit private insurance companies that we all pay, you know, we pay premiums, we pay our deductibles, and sometimes they still don't cover services. I work with a lot of students who are fighting for single payer, and a lot of them need medications for ADHD or other illnesses, and they can't get those because they are so expensive. Insulin is another example that's classic. There are so many people, and it's everywhere. Everywhere you look, there are people who need insulin who can't get it because it is so much more expensive in the United States than it is in other countries just north of us in Canada. It's cheaper to go to Canada and get insulin than it is to get insulin here. Like a, a vial or a pan of insulin, is, if it's $110 here, in the Philippines, it's 800 pesos, which is not much money, right? So yeah, yeah it's like $20 or something. And as a mother, I recall having been concerned about my son when his coverage from my insurance expired. And I said, oh my goodness, you're done with school and you're not working yet. Who covers for your insurance? Or whenever he lost his job when he was just right out of college, I was worried about if something happens to him, it will bankrupt me. Of course, as a mother, you will cover everything, right? Even if you have to sell your house. So what I'm saying is it's an agony for all of us, like for the entire population, parents, children, etc. So tell me, Miriam, how did you get so hooked up to this concept of single payer? And what drove you to be interested in advocating for this? Absolutely. As mom mentioned before, we did some campaigning with the Bernie campaign in 2020. And we used to go to the farmer's market and the flea market in our area in San Jose. And we'd see people next to the Bernie canvassers who would be canvassing for this thing called Medicare for all. And I said, oh, you know, what is that? And we looked at it and, well, mom probably knew it. But I thought it was just fascinating that, you know, it's a policy that was people were really standing on the street telling people about, distributing flyers. So that is how I got involved. I used to volunteer before the pandemic, handing out those flyers, having conversations with people about Medicare for all. And I really, really enjoyed it. I think it was probably one of the best things to do on a Sunday afternoon. So after the pandemic, I got more involved with those groups who were doing the same thing virtually. So they would have virtual meetings and meet with their legislators virtually. 
And eventually, I think last summer, I set up one of those meetings with my local representative in Congress, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. And we talked about, you know, Medicare for all and whether she'd be a co-sponsor in the following year, which in fact, in the 2021 Medicare for All Act of 2021, she is not currently a co-sponsor. And that is something that we are currently working on. And as I got more involved with the Santa Clara County Single Payer Healthcare Coalition, which I'm still involved with, I saw that compared to other issues, Medicare for All didn't really have a lot of student enthusiasm. There were so many, don't get me wrong, there are so many med students. There's an organizations full of med students, like Students for a National Health Program, who fight for Medicare for All single-payer systems. But compared to causes like climate change, combating gun violence, I didn't see a lot of people my age, high school students, college students, fighting for this. And that's something I wanted to change because I think it affects people like me. It really affects people at a young age. So I said, you know, this has to be a student-driven cause, a youth-driven cause as well. And that's basically what led me to start Students for a National Health Program chapter in the South Bay. And I've been involved since. That's wonderful. You think the students are not so involved because they don't feel the pain of having to go through that because you guys are still protected by your parents' coverage, etc. So you don't have to think about it, right? So to tell you the truth, I think there are so many causes that are pulling students left and right. Like I said, gun control, climate change, student loan debt, all of these things pulling students in different directions. And I I figured healthcare has to be one of them. And I do think to a certain extent, that's because a lot of us, like myself, I've never had to worry about healthcare in the way that I know other students do. I really haven't. And I know that that is something I'm very privileged to feel, but I think it's something that I need to change because so many of my peers are feeling this. And that's essentially why I've been involved. Yeah, I think more than ever, we felt all this inequity during the pandemic, right? So if you look at the people who are unfortunately a lot more affected by the pandemic are the disadvantaged and people of color. So I think it's about time to discuss about this single payer system or Medicare for all. So take us through this legislation. I'm so excited to hear them. Okay, let's start with the national bill. It has had so many numbers. So we had H.R. 676 back before mom and I got involved. That was the Medicare for All Act. And then it became H.R. 1384. And now it is H.R. 1976, the Medicare for All Act of 2021. And essentially what this does is it expands Medicare to every single resident of the United States. And it improves Medicare better than it currently is right now, because Medicare, as it stands, doesn't cover dental services, doesn't cover vision, it doesn't cover long-term care, doesn't cover you know, medications, and all of that would be covered under Medicare for All. So you have one really successful public insurance that people have said, hey, you know, this works for people over 65, and why, don't we, why doesn't everybody have it? So that is what Medicare for All Act of 2021 does. Mommy, you want to talk about California? Absolutely. So in terms of CalCare, which is the AB 1400, essentially it was recently introduced by uh, Congressperson Ash Parla. The work of the National Nurse United put together the AB 1400 or the CalCare, essentially, which is the statewide Medicare for, uh, or yeah, uh, 
single-payer healthcare system. The idea behind it is that we really, as a state level, we can't afford not having a universal healthcare coverage. Already uh, in California, about 70% of our healthcare dollar does actually come from the government. Unfortunately, we are still dealing with a multi-tier healthcare system where those who have and those who are employed can access healthcare and those who don't really have very little access to a decent healthcare. And again, we are suffering over and over from it. And we're seeing it, especially through the pandemics. Most people who are affluent and rich can afford actually a decent healthcare, but they are also seeing it because the caregivers for their parents and their grandparents are these low-level workers who, unfortunately, a lot of them are just, as you pointed, Dr. Gabriela, are contracted, so they don't really have good healthcare coverage or no healthcare coverage. And a lot of them simply may not even be uh, documented, so don't even have access to healthcare. And many of these individuals, unfortunately, they work multiple jobs throughout their day, going from one clinic to another or from one home to another home, trying to survive and afford the cost of our, you know, living in the Bay Area and California in general. And that, unfortunately, caused them to be far more exposed to a disease like COVID, which we have suffered from the last year and a half now. And the reality is we're seeing it more so. So these people are actually seeing firsthand the disastrous effect of lack of access to a decent healthcare. These individuals are being infected. They bring it home to the elderly people who are also getting infected. We see the highest rate of infection of COVID-19 among individuals who are elderly and sick. So the reality is in California, I believe, especially during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, people have unanimously in large quantity numbers voted for Bernie Sanders, who brought about the Medicare for All law, HR 1384 at that time during this campaign. So I would say Californians are ready, totally ready for a universal health care or a statewide single-payer healthcare system. Governor Gavin Newsom in 2017 or 2018, he submitted a request for a waiver to retain federal taxes in the state so that we can pay for a single-payer healthcare system. We are urging Governor Gavin Newsom right now to do the same and request a federal waiver. So what does AB 1400 does? AB 1400 will provide similar to what Miriam was just describing earlier, a universal healthcare coverage, primarily with cover all point of care access. So doctors, hospitals, labs, medications, visual, vision testing and hearing, as well as long-term and skilled nursing care. It will also provide mental health and access to essentially home services and home care. So these are all covered services under AB 1400. The dollars will be coming from the federal money, specifically that are currently allotted to programs like Medicare and Affordable Care Act and Medical and other programs. And there will be an established CalCare trust fund that all the money will basically pour into that. The other part of the money will be coming from taxes that are currently people are paying into healthcare premiums. So you and I, basically, when we get our healthcare insurance, we pay a premium. It could be your employer paying on your behalf, or you could be buying into the health insurance yourself in California. Instead of paying a premium to a privately owned health insurance company, which brings you very little, what you would do is you pay that premium in terms of taxation into that healthcare trust fund. Believe it or not, based on some calculations by an esteemed economist from UC Berkeley, 
you will actually save significantly on the amount of payments that you're making currently. I think I shared with you, I forget you earlier, through one Yeah, it's email. like half, right? You get half back. Exactly. You take home money after paying those taxes in terms of dollars, and everybody is satisfied. So the impact of something like this is actually enormous on businesses, on individuals. It's not just allowing people to have decent access to healthcare. But imagine if you are a small business owner, like myself, you know, I have my own office and I cover myself and my family and my employee. If I don't have to worry about having to cover my employee and instead I'll pay taxes towards their healthcare, in return, I could get very competitive individuals who actually want to work for me or want to work in my business because they are interested in my business. They are not interested in simply just getting healthcare coverage. From an entrepreneurship standpoint to an employment to flexibility in movements, you know, between jobs and creativity or people starting their own businesses and startups, it provides opportunities that are unthink of that we simply just don't have today. So to me, this is just something that I feel really very strongly about and I'm hopeful that California and our legislators will vote for and pass. So you're saying that this will not only help big business like Uber and Amazon, who tend to not cover probably some of their workers, they're always in the news highlights, but it will also help small businesses like your business and any startup company. So how about the people who are not working, like the undocumented, the underinsured or DACA? Are those covered on these plans? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. California has one of the largest populations of undocumented immigrants in the country. You can bet they're going to be covered under a system like this because right now, undocumented individuals don't even have access to Medicaid and many of them tend to be low-income individuals. And that is ridiculous. How do these people get health care? So many of them struggle with it right now. And that is something that CalCare would change. I'm sure they struggle now. I mean, I was hospitalized for COVID and just the 911 call was like a whopping $5,000. And then the one and a half day of hospitalization was a whopping $50,000. And if I didn't have any insurance, I wouldn't know where I would get that money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that that makes some people, I don't know if you've seen, but there are horrific stories of individuals who are in terrible situations, but they don't want anyone to call the ambulance. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it's so expensive sometimes. Sometimes your ambulance can be out of your network, which is one of the most stupid things I've ever seen in healthcare. (laughs) But you know, you get a five minute ambulance ride and it costs you thousands of dollars. $5,000, to be precise, just like Dr. Gabriela was saying. It was $5,000. I was actually shocked. I said, really? (laughs) Unbelievable. One of the students I talked to, her five-minute ambulance ride cost her, I think, $5,000. I think this would be really an exciting legislations that are being proposed there. So how would you encourage people to advocate for this and Miriam? I can speak a bit to that. I am very confident that the people of California are supportive of AB 1400, of CalCare. What we have to do is organize the people of California. Organize, organize, organize. So essentially what that means is getting people to call their elected officials, to write to their elected officials. So we have in California the legislature made up of the assembly and the Senate. Both of those chambers have to pass the bill before it gets to Governor Newsom, who has indicated he is supportive of a single-payer system. 
So we have to be letting our elected officials know that this is something that we want. So we need to be writing to them. We need to be reaching out to them and saying, hey, you better co-author this and you better vote yes on it. It first has to go to the Assembly Health Committee, then the Assembly Appropriations Committee, and then to the Assembly as a whole, and then do the same thing in the Senate. So we've got to make sure that all of those individuals on those committees are supportive and know that their constituents want this, which they do. So for anybody who's listening who thinks this is a great idea, go talk to your elected official. Call them, write a postcard to them, and tell them this is what you want and that you expect them to vote on this. Could we help people who are not so literate to help them write the letter, the postcard? I mean, you know how it is. You have to go to the community and get people act on it because people are not computer savvy. They can't send a computer email or whatever. They don't know who to reach. So how would these people who are hard to reach get activated to actually start advocating for this healthcare change? Honestly, it's all grassroots work. You know, we all have to, just like Mayim said, reach out to each other. A lot of what I do, what I see around me is basically, you know, people, as you said, you know, not interested, don't want to sign, don't want to vote, don't want to write that letter. It's just too much for them for work, pick up the phone. So if you live in my household, for example, and you have a daughter like Miriam, you will see that she will be talking and picking and writing down the phone number to her grandparents to say, okay, this is the number you're going to call. And this is the script that you're going to do. And I believe, honestly, that's what we need to do. We need to help educate each other. That doesn't take really a lot. And frankly, we don't want to have a script that people will be saying, you know, the same thing over and over. I think the individual touch is really more important. The bottom line is we need to educate everybody who's around us, essentially. And it's a word of mouth. So everyone does their part. If everyone does their part, essentially, and teach the people who are around them to say, okay, this is the phone number to your council member. Pick up the phone and just tell them, I'm so-and-so, and I support AB 1400. Please do sign on to this legislation because this is important to me, and I live in your district. If they simply say that, the more phone calls they receive, the more likely they begin, honestly, on behalf of the wishes of the people that they represent. Do you train people to have this to call during the election, right? We activated people by calling them and give them the, like, what it is. And so they could also call their friends. Do we have, like, those infographics that we could distribute? And when would this be decided on? That is exactly what groups like the Santa Clara County Single Payer Healthcare Coalition did before the pandemic. They had those flea market setups and they turned support into power, right? They'd say, hey, you know, do you support this? This is how you can make your voice heard. And when a couple of years ago in 2017, there was a Senate bill, SB 562, that's exactly what organizers for Medicare for All did. They went door to door. They literally knocked on people's doors and said, hey, do you support this? Can you help us get it passed? And that's the work that they did. Yeah. And I I really think that we need to be continuing that even during the pandemic, because that is ultimately what is going to get this passed. So absolutely, we do have flyers. There are really great organizations across California who have made informative sessions, flyers, 
all of that stuff. And I'm more than happy to send that to Dr. Graviola. Absolutely. Um, I think we'll start giving them out. Would they allow that at Stanford? Yeah, of course. It's healthcare, right? Yeah, there are workshops honestly done also by the Single Fair Coalition, by California you know, Nurses Association, California, fantastic. by organizations like SNAP. So Miriam just had an organizing workshop yesterday that you guys were teaching people on how to reach out and forward and educate people and pass information. So these are happening. You're right, absolutely, Dr. Gabriela, that with the pandemic, it's a little bit trickier because of the lack of person-to-person contact. But we have Actually, even during the pandemic, Miriam and I have gone to door to door, flashing flyers under, you know, and distant, you know, medicine, so we're not contacting people, but still passing flyers, trying to get people yeah. get interested in the issues that, you know, are at hand. So we could distribute these flyers with every student would have to put 100 flyers to individual homes. I think the flyers right now would come second, in my opinion, to something that is online because the entire format of all of our work is online. But I think that having flyers as a backup for anything like that, where you go door to door is being the most effective way. Absolutely. We need I will go to Pacifica all door to door and I'll put flyers on, on <laughs> people's homes. So when would this be decided on? Oh, okay. So I think that the assembly hearing for the health committee will happen April 21st. So that's and coming up. It mm-hmm. is coming up. It is, it is. So there are some events that are the coalition is hosting. A speak out on April 17th. They're going to go out and talk to basically the people of California and especially to the Assembly Health Committee and say, hey, we support this. Make sure you know that. The California Health Benefits Review Program, also lovingly called CHBRP, is going to come up with an analysis of the AB 1400 CalCare which they will then submit to the health committee. And that is how the, the timeline is going to work from there. I believe afterwards, May, there's a hearing in the appropriations committee that passes health committee. But yes, to answer your question briefly, it is a fast paced timeline and it is approaching. How about on the national level? You know how divided it is, right? The Senate, the Congress, and stuff like that. So how do you think this would look like on a federal level? Unfortunately, I mean, if you look at some studies, about $233 million is spent a year annually on lobbying by health insurance companies and drug companies to try and prevent the Congress from voting on things that will limit costs or curb essentially the exuberant prices of our medications. So we are fighting an upward battle. There is no question about it. And I'm not really trying to paint a rosy picture here because in reality, unfortunately, both Democrats and Republicans don't want to see this happen because of the fact that a lot of them are recipients of these dollars in terms of like finance campaigning and what have you, which is essentially, you know, preventing them from voting what their constituents really want them to vote. But I think we just have to keep the pressure on, just like we're saying here, essentially, at the local level and at the national level, we have to keep the pressure on. At this point, currently, there are 114 representatives basically that were signed on, co-signed the HRs. 1976. We need, I believe, another um, to to pass it to get to the 51 votes. The Senate is the the that's the Senate. Mm. Oh yeah, but in the House we need another 60 votes, I believe, in order to be able to or 60 co-signers. 
This is a number again. Don't quote me on it, but we need a lot more. Yeah, we need a lot more. We need yeah. a lot more people to basically co-sign to get it on the floor because, unfortunately, again, we, as we remember, if you remember when Biden was running, he specifically said he is not going to support a single-payer healthcare system. So, Which is another reason why I think we should be really focusing this effort on the states for now, because if California or model uh, state and economy passes this. And it shows the rest of the country, hey, this is something that can be done. There's going to be a lot of public pressure to get this moving in the national realm, which is exactly what happened in Canada with the province of Saskatchewan passing it first. And then it moved on to the entire nation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when Medicare started in what signed in 65 by President Johnson, at that time, the idea was not honestly to limit it to only the 65 and older. At that time, it was sat there and slowly rolled as an initiative to the rest of the nation. Somehow, again, the lobbying and all that stuff really prevented it from proceeding in that direction. If you ask any Republican or Democrat today, do you like Medicare? Unanimously, they both agree that Medicare is the best government federal coverage program. So from a bipartisan standpoint, I believe the people really want something of Medicare for all nature. The reality is our politicians are not aligned necessarily with the will of the people due to, unfortunately, as we said earlier, lobbying and finance, campaign financing, corruptions and things like that. Unfortunately, it's legal, but still, just the way the system is set up. So we really have to make our voice heard as I said earlier, to make sure these people push for what we believe in. The support of the people on their side is money. So we've got to make sure people win. Absolutely. Tell me, like, what are the predominant pros and cons of this Medicare for all? Who are the stakeholders? I'd say the stakeholders are really everybody, but um, especially I'd say people of color. People of color really have a lot at stake in this. COVID-19, I think it really, really showed what our healthcare system is. It really laid bare all the inequities in it. With people of color twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as white Americans. I think that's ridiculous. insane that's happening in our country, and yet it is. So I'd say that some of the biggest stakeholders are people of color, people with mental health needs, because that is something that is not very not covered traditionally under many insurance plans. And or their coverage is very minimal. Right, right. And it's expensive. There are a lot of stakeholders, but I'd say those are two main ones. So I'll add to that, honestly, physicians themselves, because currently the way doctors are being pressured to operate under this, I would call it the engine of, you know, you have to produce these literally sitting, spending two hours for each hour of patient interaction, documenting in order to get paid for billing purposes and to satisfy, you know, the requirement of a note by a healthcare insurance. Well, physicians really have a big stake in this. It, unfortunately, physician organizations are really not on board. If you take the AMA and the CMA in California, they are really not yet on board with a national healthcare system. AMA's arm has to be twisted with Medicare for All when it came to signing it on, as a legislation in 1965 by again President Johnson. But the reality is still, as physicians, eventually will be the biggest recipients and beneficiaries of this system. I believe we really have to take the initiative and in support of this. I would also add at this point that, yes, the, the people who are at disadvantage are healthcare insurance, no question about it. 
and pharmaceutical companies to some degree. Yet, believe it or not, they will still make profit. But, but the truth is healthcare insurance will cease to need to have the necessity to exist the way they exist today. I don't believe or I don't envision that they will be gone completely. And with the same token, I believe a lot of unions are ambivalent about whether to support or not. And part of that is because this is one of their strengths, is the negotiating power. Again, remember how all healthcare came about in the United States. It's all employer-based. So union organizations have drawn their strength from the negotiating power with the employer and the healthcare insurance to try to get their members the maximum benefit. To some degree, gets weaker and will may potentially cease to exist. But the reality is, I argue to the opposite, and I say unions can focus on better issues. If the basics are covered by the nation, then focus on things that are more meaningful to your employees, such as pay, salary, pay, <laughs> salary, sick pay, sick day coverage. You know, other benefits, other benefits. Get companies to cover fertility services. You know that are currently like you see employers like Google and Facebook they cover women to have their eggs frozen get your get your employer to cover their services like that and are actually really truly really beneficial still but may not be covered under necessarily the basic uh, services that we're talking about again so this is part of the educational campaign that we really have to launch is to educate unions as well as other organizations and businesses business owners and small business owners, that this is really to their advantage. If we have a system like this, it is definitely to their advantage. And um, there are already fantastic organizations. Labor for single payer is awesome. Uh, these are unions who are supportive and fighting for it. Physicians for a National Health Program, Mom's the chair of the South Bay chapter. They're amazing. Businesses for Medicare for All. Oh, my goodness. All these are organizations that they've said, hey, this is really good for us. Single payer would actually help us a lot. Yeah, I remember this when I was in private practice a long time ago. I was afraid, like I said, oh my goodness, I, I don't think I would take so many Medicare, right? Because they don't pay much, right? But it turned out that actually they pay well. And plus, they were very consistent. You know, you get your pay as soon as really a few weeks later compared to other insurance companies that you don't get your reimbursement until much, much later. So they're very consistent. You know where you stand. But my question is, is there a threat to doctors' autonomy? On the contrary, I would say, honestly, if anything, it'll open the possibilities for doctors to have their own private practices, to be more independent, because again, reimbursement will not be so complex the way it is structured today. Currently, physicians' offices spend more than one to two thirds of their income on overhead costs. And part of that is, you know, again, employing people to deal with this complex insurance-based model. If you take a practice like mine, for example, where probably 90%, I would say, about my patients are Medicare-based, it's a really simple procedure. You submit the bill, you get the payments. There isn't really a lot of complexities in trying to track down or chase the insurance company to pay for the services. So from a physician standpoint, you have a lot more autonomy. You are competing based on best practices, based on the level of care you provide for your patients. Truly, even there is room for concierge medicine and all other services, because these are not covered necessarily, but people can still offer. There are still going to be patients who want to pay for these, and that's still going to be the case. There is room to many different practice models that doctors can have. They don't have to be tied in 
to an employer, again, to be employed. They can open shop and care for their patients wherever they want to. So from a physician's perspective, I think there's going to be a lot more flexibility as well as simplicity in terms of dealing with with insurance companies and overhead costs. What have we learned from other countries who have a single payer? Could we learn from them? Because they have done this for so long. Absolutely. Maybe you remember, we went to this symposium that was run by Stanford, UCSF, UC Berkeley, and they invited some phenomenal speakers all to talk about Medicare for All. And people came in from England, from UK, from Canada, from Spain, from Brazil, all to talk about their models of healthcare and from France. And the idea is they really all felt obliged or obligated to help us have the better version of their healthcare. So to me, it's like we have all these resources at our disposal that we can pick, cherry pick the things that work in these healthcare systems and model it here in our system. Uh, in reality is if you look at most countries who provide universal healthcare coverage, the basics are generally always covered. Point of care, hospitals, doctors, labs, outpatient emergency room services, imaging, uh, medications. These are typically the things that are covered automatically. And the beauty of that, again, because you have the nation, the variation, oftentimes it's how it's implemented. So sometimes it's state-based, you know, sometimes it's nationwide and it's all the same. But for the most common scenarios are it's the federal government that pays and the states basically model it specifically based on their, they have their own different ways of implementing it, more so to speak. But yeah, we have our neighbors in the north, Canada, who has a Canadian Medicare (laughs) system that practically covers all the things that we just discussed. I think one thing that we need to learn from other countries and that I remember learning from that symposium is why only expanding Medicare isn't going to cut it. Because what happens is, and as that's called, you know, Biden's public option, a lot of these nations have come to teach us, the United States, this isn't really working for us. Because what happens is all those administrative waste that comes with the private insurance remains in the system. So not only are you paying for the extra cost of expanding Medicare to everyone, but you're also retaining those huge costs of keeping private insurance. Um, and that's often to appease those lobbyists and corporations that are working to make sure that the healthcare system stays the way they want it to. What happens then is it ends up being extremely expensive and it doesn't save money in the way that single payer does. So that's one thing that I'd say we learned from other countries. And we see that you know, a lot of people from, I, I know there's this one person from Taiwan who came to help California develop their AB, maybe not AB 1400, but are helping to develop California single payer. So people are coming from all across the world, teach us, how lucky are we to teach us how to make our system the best one that there is. And I really hope that that's what we can do in the United States. I was talking to a patient last night. I was seeing one patient who was a graphic artist who did those original bumper stickers for uh, a single-payer system in the 1990s, 1994 to be exact. And she showed me all these bumper stickers from, I think it's Neighbor to Neighbor Organization. Is that the organization's name? Neighbor to Neighbor in 1994. So she was showing me all the stickers and the cards and the 
cards look like your social security card. That will be your Medicare, like the Medicare yeah. for all card or mm. the single payer card. So she had all the designs of those ones. I, I was so fascinated by it. I forgot about why she came in for the telemedicine. But we're about at the end here, believe it or not. We're almost to an hour mark. But <laughs> this is an important topic and it should continue. But could you give us a link that they could go to if there's a link or phone number for our listeners? And also, could you give your take-home points? Absolutely. As for a link, I go back to this link every time I have a question. It is the National Nurses United, a fantastic organization. They have an FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions, about Medicare for All. They also have an email, and I'm putting these into the chat. They've also got info at medicareforall.org and email address info at medicareforall.org. Four is with the number four. You can email them, ask them if you have any questions. Uh, yeah, and I also put the PNHP link here at Dr. Gaviola. They have wonderful resources for people who have questions and simple answers. And I would argue, honestly, that it's written in a language that most people will be able to understand and relate to. So I think absolutely that's another resource. This is a wonderful topic uh, for ongoing podcasts because this is such an important advocacy, I think. So I really want to congratulate you, Yusra, for having a daughter like Miriam, who as early uh, as freshman high school was already passionate about working for population health. Really, it's amazing. You are an amazing mom. And Miriam, you're such an amazing person. Thank you for helping me with this podcast, Medicine for Good. And we'll move on and advocate for you and send us those infographics and anything that you could send us so we could help you advocate for this most important healthcare change in our system. Thank, Thank you, you very Dr. much. Thank you, yeah. Dr. Gabriola. Keep up the amazing work that you do. I'm really uh, appreciative of everything you've done so far. So wonderful. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you, Yusra. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.